Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host Jack Perks and this week I'm going to be interviewing Victoria Hillman about why everyone should love frogs. What a great title for a podcast. Well first we're going to go to the news and keeping on topic it's going to be about amphibians. So an article by Steve Allen states that we are now living in the golden age of amphibian discovery. Since the year 2000 we've discovered over 2,500 new species of amphibians and since the 1980s, we have more than doubled the total number of amphibian species known to science, which is a huge leap in a relatively short amount of time. On average, 160 new amphibian species are discovered each year, approximately one every couple of days. So that's a lot of frogs and toads being found. So what are the reasons for this? Well, Ancestry DNA and all these kind of companies that are trying to trace your ancestry are making their technology to sequence DNA cheaper which means you can test species that outwardly look the same, but are in fact genetically different species. There's also a backlog of old specimens from Victorian explorers who would catch amphibians as a bycatch when looking for birds, and some are only just being classified now, so there could be a brand new species hidden in the vaults of your favourite museum. Also, there are more people than ever working as zoologists and specialising amphibians, so it's a multitude of factors all contributing to all these different amphibians being found. And this week, I'm joined by Victoria Hillman, who is a professional wildlife photographer specialising in macro, particularly frogs, as I'm sure we'll hear lots about. She's an ambassador for Manfrotto and has judged major wildlife competitions, such as British Wildlife Photography Awards and Bird Photographer of the Year, along with running tours with Nature Lens. She's also one half of the UK Wildlife Podcast, which I suggest you check out. And the other half, Neil Phillips, will be on the show next week. So thanks for joining me, Vicky. Um, one of the things I learned about you is that you're completely self-taught in, in photography, which I didn't realise. But you have got multiple kind of wildlife uh, d- degrees and, and qualifications and whatnot. So, so what led you down the path of being a photographer? Um, well, thank you very much for having me, Jack. Uh, it's great <laughs> to kind of come on. Um, I think... From a very young age, my parents bought me my first little point and shoot 35mm camera when I was a little girl running around outside. And I just really enjoyed capturing everything that I was seeing, everything that I was doing. Um, And it kind of went from there. So it was a way of me kind of showing my parents, really, I guess, more than anything else. And then as I got older, my friends and other people. um, I mean, yeah, I've, I've always wanted to work with wildlife and nature, but when I was at school it was very much you know go down the route of getting a a science degree you've got something to fall back on you can do everything intertwined then so went down the route of doing science that's my other passion is I'm I love learning I love science and I love animal behavior so kind of went down that route and then managed to combine my photography and my science together Um, so I'm very very lucky that I can actually do that. Well, I'm sure it's incredibly beneficial to, to know the, the life histories and the behaviours of your subjects because you can anticipate that and, and work it into your imagery. Definitely. The more you know about your, your subjects and be that how it interacts with its habitat, its life cycle, the best times to find it, it really makes a massive difference um, to being able to actually capture images that maybe people haven't captured before or seeing new behaviours. I mean, what probably about three or four years ago now I spent four months photographing one colony of frogs on one nature reserve and for the first time ever I actually managed to witness a frog eating its own skin so I managed to get some photos of that as well so it's the more you know the more the more you understand and then you know to be in the right position 
at the right time and you know how to behave around them as well which, which is a really big important factor so you got to know those frogs pretty well then um yes i i did i actually started naming them um, <laughs> go on, what were the names no, it was more like kind of squiggle or greeny <laughs> so it it was describing their traits um because they were all very much individual and you could actually you started to notice the individual patterns one of them instead of having a green line had a squiggle down it so he became squiggle um just and it helps with identifying different individuals and you can then follow their progress so i suppose as years. I suppose as well, people wouldn't really uh, think that a frog would have a personality or, or characteristics, but I guess, is that fair to say they do? They've got different kind of, uh, personality might be a bit of a strong way, but different temperaments. Um, I would say they've definitely got different characteristics. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time with them and I think they do. I think it's just like any other wildlife. They all have their own little characteristics, you know, especially as adults, you, you definitely notice that. And I notice it the more time I spend with them. Um, I spent time with the same colony of toads I, I actually survey them and photograph them every year and, and you get you get to know them the different colors the patterns and you see how each of them actually behaves slightly differently so I would say they definitely have their own characteristics so I've got um I've got frogs in my pond and I, I was saying this on a, a podcast the other day to someone that the it, spring hasn't started for me until the frogs are in my pond and they're and they're spawning and I recognise the patterns, so it's always nice to see them come back each year. And like, oh, that's you know, I haven't named mine, but I recognise the patterns. And yeah. <laughs> um, some of them in in the summer, I've got about four or five that stay in my garden. And if I go out with a pot of worms, they'll take it out of my hand. I'll just go out and feed mm -hmm. them. It's quite nice that they trust me, and if they don't freak out, they just kind of sit there. And uh, I've not got them doing tricks or anything yet, but it's quite <laughs> nice that they kind of trust me like that. Um, so people may have gathered that you're quite keen on frogs. So why frogs? Um. I honestly don't know. I've loved frogs. I mean, again, since being a little girl, I mean, I look back and talk to my parents and I see some of the things from when I was growing up. I've always had this affinity and this love of frogs. And I think over the last few years, that's definitely grown. And I think as well, I mean, it's not just frogs. Um, it is toads as well. I mean, we're yeah. one of the few countries that actually differentiates between frogs and toads. In a lot of countries, everything is classed as a frog even though it's a frog or a toad. So, oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you, a lot of countries, um, you know, when you travel and you speak to them, it's, you know, we're, we're looking for frogs. You know, we're going to go out and we're look, looking for frogs. We're actually looking for what we would call frogs and toads. They just group them all together under frogs. Ah. So it's, it's frogs and toads, really. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of people don't like them. A lot of people have a love of frogs but not toads and actually when you look at some toads a lot of people wouldn't be able to tell if it's a toad or a frog there's you know some that do definitely look like more like frogs than they do toads and i, I just think they're they're fascinating I, I think they're weirdly cute and adorable and have great personalities and obviously these incredible life cycles that people can see as well when they spawn and then you get the tadpoles and eventually these little froglets and toadlets emerging i think it's just fascinating they seem to be a marmite species, don't they? Because you'll you go around someone's house who loves frogs and they're everywhere. They lie. I'm imagining this is your house, Victoria, where there's frogs all on the mantelpiece and pictures of frogs and, and all over the place. <laughs> it's uh, not quite that bad. It's not no, quite okay. that bad, Jack. I have got, I've got three frogs that sit on my desk and I've got a picture of a frog above my computer, but that's about it. <laughs> okay, you're kind of midway then, midway. Yeah. Slip, slippery slope. But then other people like, so for example, my... Um, my girlfriend's mum, she actually lives in Romney Marsh, which you'll probably know for marsh frogs. 
um, and she can't stand frogs. She hates them. And I'm like, well, why? They, they don't bite. They're completely uh, harmless. And she just, it's something about them. But then you meet people like yourself who are incredibly passionate. So they are a divisive subject for some reason. I don't know why. I, I think they're great. I think, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. You get people that just have this almost like fear. It's not, I wouldn't say it's a hatred. You know, it's definitely a fear of frogs. Yeah. But yeah. again, you, it's like, why? They're not, they're completely harmless. Um, and, you know, scientifically, they're incredible um, species are actually incredibly important for uh, being able to assess the health of ecosystems as well. They're one species that you, you would definitely keep an eye on if you're worried about certain ecosystems um, starting to break down. And I don't know whether it's something to do with folklore. I mean, the toads, I, I kind of get. Unfortunately, there's a lot in folklore um, when you look down the route of witchcraft and stuff like that. There's a lot of negativity around toads. So whether that's just kind of spilled over and people just see toads and frogs as the same thing um i don't know because I, I i mean i don't get it personally and that's kind of like my little one woman mission to make everybody love them <laughs> <laughs> i'll get there one day <laughs> yeah definitely keep keep going um and you must have a favorite frog or a favorite species so what what's your favorite species of frog i would say out of the ones i've seen for myself in the wild and photographed it would have to be the european tree frog oh, okay um, for sure um these little little creatures they make amazing amounts of noise when you hear them at the breeding ponds it's actually deafening um but they they are just so full of character and personality and the more time you spend with them you just see that um they're absolutely fascinating i think a close second would be probably the wallace flying frog that i was lucky enough to see in borneo oh wow um, that would okay. be a very close second but yeah they're probably my two top ones we had we did a podcast on rewilding a few uh, a few weeks ago with Pete Cooper and he I asked him what species would he most want to be kind of brought back to the UK and he said European tree frog just because there is there's historical evidence of them being here a long long yep. time ago and he said even though they're not great habitat engineers they're an incredibly charismatic species and mm. you can just imagine having those in um, although tree frog they're not really they don't go in trees they're more kind of bramble isn't it in places like that yeah I mean I I've never seen a tree frog in a tree. <laughs> uh, I have to admit, in, I've seen them in three different countries now, and I've never seen one in a tree. Um, I've seen them in brambles, which is quite interesting. You see these these really quite delicate little frogs in amongst these huge bramble thorns, and they pick their way through so carefully. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I've seen them in tall grasses in France, where mm. they actually they inhabit the big tall grasses, and they're very hard to find because they just blend in perfectly. Um, and then I've seen them in breeding ponds as well um so yeah i've never actually seen one in a tree it's so. false advertising really isn't it yeah they're, they're kind of like just general plant frogs i think <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't quite have the same ring does it <laughs> it doesn't know <laughs> um and you produced a book didn't you called forgotten little creatures which celebrates the little guys so why do you think it's important we highlight these less glam species i think really because they're so important to the ecosystems and the habitats you know we need we need the plants it's everything starts with the plants and then the invertebrates and then up obviously into our amphibians and reptiles but they're species that generally they don't get the love and the publicity through competitions or the the media and certainly with the media it's very negative um certainly when it comes to snakes and they just don't get that love that they really need and and i think people don't really appreciate the importance uh, I mean, I know, you know there's a lot done about bees and butterflies as pollinators, but actually beetles um, do a lot of pollinating as well. So and spiders. So there's just that whole, you know, array of species. And some of them are so incredibly beautiful with amazing life cycles. And 
yeah, we're, we're lucky in this country that those, you know, very few of those animals are actually harmful to us. You know, it's, it's not like we live in Australia where, you know, a lot of the spiders are deadly. Um, yeah. But I think they just don't get the publicity that they really deserve and they really need. And, and so many people have a fear of a lot of these little things um, that it's just trying to raise awareness. And there's a lot of really interesting historical and scientific facts about them as well that I found out when, you know, when I was researching and writing the first book. And now actually I'm continuing the project and doing more research. And some of the stuff I'm finding out is just incredible. Well, it's, it doesn't seem like every year you're getting, there's always a story about adders and dog walkers or, or more recently false widow spiders. Every year it's about these yeah. false widow spiders. And it's just like, they, they've been here a while. It's nothing new. Why do you keep, I, I guess it sells papers or they just keep kind of doing this misinformation. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've done a lot of work with the, from the adder side of things, um, just the negative press. And, you know, I, I don't know where they get a lot of these stories from. I mean, I've, I've worked in adder habitats for a long time and, you know, the adders will move away from you. They're not going to actively attack you unless you corner them. Um, but then any animal, if it feels threatened and it's cornered, it's, it's going to do that. And I think it, it's just, it sells papers and people just want to, to demonize something. And unfortunately it's, you know, it's animals like the spiders and the snakes, you know, something with eight legs and eight eyes or no legs and venom you know people just want to demonize something unfortunately and it's a real shame because a lot of these animals are quite threatened i mean if we look, take amphibians for example i think 41 percent of the world's amphibians are threatened with extinction you know and there are there are new species being listed as endangered straight away because you know they're so delicate yeah and certainly with our amphibians because they a lot of them breathe through their skin you know they they pick up toxins you know and, and they can be disrupted by pollutants in water in the air and that's why they're actually very good indicators for habitat health um, for that reason but it's yeah like you say new species are getting discovered and they're going straight on the endangered list because their habitat's under under threat for whatever reason um and you know in some respects it's it's collecting as well people will go into the wild and collect them unfortunately yeah, a, I think that's one of the reasons, because there was a population of tree frogs in the New Forest, I think, at one point. And I think they, um, this was up until the 80s. And I'm not sure if it was introduced or, or natural, but one of the main reasons for that going, I think, was collectors going in yeah. and nicking them, unfortunately. Yeah, pretty much. And, and, you know, I think if you find any species like that, you will always have people that will collect them, for sure, unfortunately. And as much as you try and police it, you can't police it 24 hours a day unless you put you know someone with that colony 24 hours a day which just isn't possible no no it's a real it's a real shame uh one thing i wanted to get your opinion on is is macro photography it's rife with the kind of shots and i'm sure you've seen these where you've like got a a frog with then the snail on it and then maybe the frog and the snail are sat on a turtle <laughs> uh, which i'm sure is the bane of your your sort of stuff but yes, i just want to get your yeah. opinion on that um so i they they are pretty much the bane of my life. I absolutely <laughs> hate these images. I hate the fact that they still get the publicity in the media. And I do a lot of kind of online campaigning when these images come up to try and educate people that these are not real images. They have been completely set up. And also I think educating people to the level of cruelty that actually goes into these images as well. And that's the one thing a lot of people don't realize is, you know, with a lot of these images, the frogs um, and the other animals, whatever is involved, they're chilled down to the point of paralysis and then positioned. And, and you're putting predator and prey together where they just wouldn't normally do that. 
um, and it's a very very unnatural situation uh, I mean a lot of the images come out of the same country unfortunately uh, and they're actually the animals involved are normally bought from the pet trade so they're not actually wild either um, but it just misrepresents these animals and it it as somebody that spends a lot of time photographing amphibians it and doing a lot of macro work with amphibians it's a very very hard area of photography to to perfect and also to do because you're working in very hot humid wet conditions which the camera gear doesn't like uh, which you'll understand mm. <laughs> um but also it's it just completely misrepresents them and people think that that they do all this this stuff and, and they don't but then you produce images beautiful images of a frog in its natural habitat and people can't connect with that because they're too used to seeing these other images so in a way it undermines all the hard work you've been doing doesn't it it does uh, myself and there's actually a couple of other really um good kind of uh, amphibian photographers as well and and both again they're actually scientists as well so they're scientists and photographers and it does it really undermines the hard work that we all try and do to you know highlight the, these beautiful species on their own terms um but i think you know there's there's a big educational side of things you you have to inform people the amount of cruelty that actually goes on in these and when they know then you know you suddenly see them go wow you see that moment of realization and you know when you've educated that one person they can then go on and educate more people so it's it, it's a long hard battle and it, it can get you down at times but it's worth it yeah definitely so so with your photography um are you uh are you completely hands-off like so you'd never you'd never touch a subject or would you kind of move things out away because obviously there's different levels isn't it i mean that's the whole frog and the snail thing is the extreme yeah. isn't it but yeah, like yeah, kind of where where do you draw the line i guess you might not have the answer i'm just i'm just interested in um 99 of my work is done completely hands-off um yeah. i would prefer to photograph them completely on their terms in their natural habitat there's yeah. a, there's a few shots that I have done when I've been on trips trying or trying to get specific images for something um, where I may have just moved something slightly out of the way yeah. but generally speaking it's it's as hands-off as I can possibly be um, because then they, they behave naturally and you get that much more natural image and certainly anything I do in my own garden it's it's completely on their terms uh, so in 2018 I spent about three or four weeks when all the froglets emerged i just sat by the pond and just captured their behaviors they just went about being little froglets um, i didn't move anything i i just worked with what i had in front of me and it produces some interesting images actually um, yeah so yeah the bulk the bulk of it is hands off um you know occasionally when i've been on trips i have if i've been working with herpetologists as well and we've been doing something specific then we have maybe occasionally moved a subject but it's moving it from maybe a couple of inches and then it goes back and quite often if we're doing that we actually check the health of it as well at the same time yeah so th there's a science element to it my, my philosophy has always been um as long as it's legal to do so as long as you're not harming the animal or stressing it out uh, i've never really seen a problem with someone you know moving it slightly like like you describe i think if you're if you're, t if you're taking it you know meters or miles away to get a different kind of shot or stressing it out then no that that's obviously not not good for the animal but you know a little bit just to kind of help it and then you put it back on its way personally i've never seen the problem with it but i understand what you're saying yeah and i think it's it's like if you know like yourself and, and myself and a few of the other photographers that we both know you know we we fully understand our, our subjects and we know when they're showing signs of distress we can read that unfortunately a lot of people can't and i think that's it's just saying to people you know just 
be a little bit more hands-off unless you fully understand your subject because I mean I know I can tell when a frog or other animals being stressed out so you know when to kind of step back and draw the line and sometimes that can just be that you know you've maybe got a little bit too close and it gives you a warning sign and you just step back but I think with a lot of people if they don't understand that then they can cause distress so it's a level of you know again it's back to the fully understanding your subject the classic one is, is probably adders in the UK because you can spot a, a, a tampered adder shot a mile off, can't you? When someone is yeah. as blatantly, you know, you see these images of an adder in the middle of a field or some or a kind of heath, nothing around it, it's isolated and it's always a wide angle or something. You're like, you know, I, I never used to twig on, but now now I'm in the industry, I'm like, you've definitely just picked that up, put it there, and it's just like, you know, I you, and and now when I look at these wide angles, I'm like. Or yeah, I'm always thinking, have they done something? And, and I always try and look for the imperfections because you think, well, it's probably real if there's a slight imperfection because if they'd set it up, they'd have, they'd have got rid of that twig or they'd have done that. Yeah. So I actually like a bit of mess in a lot of wide angles or you know something li a little bit wrong because it's mm. almost a bit genuine, if that makes sense. It does completely make sense. I mean, I, I have done a few um, setup shots not in this country and I have been working with a herpetologist um, at the time and we've done some habitat shots of different species um, but at the same, again, same time we've been measuring and taking data from these animals and then they yeah. go back where they've come from but you know, I, I would never do it in this country um, you know, I'm doing it with a licensed herpetologist um, he's actually researching all these subjects but yeah, you, you can spot them a mile off and we do have a big problem here uh, one of the sites where talking to the rangers last year they actually have people that go they will pick an adder up they'll put it in the middle of the path to photograph it, and then they'll just leave it mm. um, and the problem is when people start doing that it's you know you, you can impact on the future population because you you're causing it stress and a lot of damage and certainly with adders if the males aren't out long enough they don't they can't kind of prepare themselves for breeding and they might not successfully breed if they're continually disturbed so it's it's actually potentially causing uh, declines in populations by the number of people that are going and actually doing this kind of thing so i guess people don't realize that they're they're affecting the health of that animal you know if they keep doing it they're gonna die out i guess eventually is the extreme uh, end result yeah i mean it, it can definitely push some of the popular some of the smaller more isolated populations and i think that's the thing people don't they put the um the value in the of the image way before the health of the subject and what it doesn't matter what level you're photographing at you know or what you're photographing the welfare and well-being of your animal should always come first and if that's you know short term or long term it's the same thing it's i mean i've learned a lot about adders in the last you know five six years doing the surveys and, and working on the project as well and the number of people that i speak to that are photographing these animals and they don't realize that males have to bath to produce sperm and if they're not allowed to do that they don't breed and the females have to prepare themselves for breeding as well. And they only breed every once every couple of years and they just don't realize potential damage they could be causing. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that females so, didn't breed every year. Most of them will breed every other year because they give birth to live young. Oh, of course. Um, yeah, they do. It, yeah. It takes a, a, a big toll on their body. So they, they kind of prepare and then breed every other year. Oh, wow. I'm learning so much during yeah. these podcasts, the amount of facts that people are throwing at me. And I, and I thought I already knew a lot about these species, but yeah, it's putting me to shame, really. Um, so I'm going to end on this last question, which is, is, is there a frog or an amphibian that you're yet to see that you really want to photograph? Oh, now you put me on the spot. Um, 
I'd actually, I'd love to go to Costa Rica and photograph the glass frogs in Costa Rica, or oh, okay. in Central or Southern America generally, actually. I'd love to go and photograph the frog and frog species over there. So why, uh, so I don't know a lot about these. So what, what's a glass frog then? What's so special so about them? They're actually, with a lot of them, they're much smaller than any of the frogs we have over here. They're, they're teeny tiny. And for a lot of them, they have almost like a see-through um, abdomen, uh, like stomach. So when you turn them over, you can actually see their organs. And oh, wow. and also in South America, some of the eyes, the patterns in the eyes are just absolutely phenomenal um, in those species. And they just have some just absolutely amazingly beautiful species over there. So one day I'm going to get over there and that's kind of what I'd like to do next. Yeah, definitely. That's your next book, isn't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, next two books are going to be UK and mainland Europe, which I'm working on now. And same, sticking with the Forgotten Little Creatures project, um, same thing, just kind of spreading my wings a little bit more and then yeah i'd like to kind of continue the project overseas at some point yeah i don't blame you if, if i could do any amphibian i'd love to do the giant salamanders i think it's it japan or somewhere like that yeah I'd i saw one at london zoo and the size of it just amazing mm. i was i thought it'd be you know bigish but it was it's bigger than my dog <laughs> yeah they're, they're absolutely huge absolutely huge i mean have, have you done fire salamanders I used to have one as a pet, actually, when I was a kid. So um, okay. I, I've, I've done a little bit, not, not wild ones. I've been to hungry uh, looking for them, but I didn't see any. Um, doing wild fire salamanders is amazing. Absolutely amazing. They're, they're incredible. Really, really are. Yeah. I was actually lucky enough to do them last year. Um, but they're, they're, fas they're fascinating, along with the fire-bellied and yellow-bellied toads as well. Yeah, ag are. again, I used to keep them as pets, but I've never seen a wild one. Yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely kind of up there with amazing species to photograph in the wild. Yeah, I'm sure. I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to do it. Someday, someday I'm sure I will. Um, well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you, Victoria. So thanks for coming on the show. Oh, no problem at all. Thank you very much for having me, Jack. That brings me on to Nature Reserve of the Week, and I've chosen London Wetland Centre for this week's Nature Reserve. It's a 100-acre urban oasis with over 180 bird species recorded, with kingfisher, bittern and yellow wagtail being among the highlights. It's also an important site for many rare species like water voles and European eel. It's an escape for people to get away from the urban sprawl for an hour or two. It was the first urban nature park of its kind in the UK, and in 2012 it was voted the nation's favourite nature reserve. It's not just about the birds though, it's got common lizards, grass snakes, newts, and one of the star attractions, marsh frogs, which you can hear croaking in the summer. Insects are plentiful, with dragonflies and butterflies fluttering around, and if you look closely in the ditches along some of the paths, you may even see shoals of perch and sticklebacks in the clear water. Following the WWT model, they blend captive wildlife with natural species, so you can go and see short-clawed otters, exotic waterfowl, and waders. It has six hides, with a two-storey hide with a panoramic view. This and the peacock hide have lifts built into them, so they're very accessible for people of all abilities. As you'd expect for a big attraction in the capital, facilities are very good. The usual suspects of toilets, calf, no escape from a gift shop as you go by the exit, um, and of course it's set up very nicely for kids as well with a big play area. Parking is somewhat limited, um, and depending where you're travelling from, Public transport can take a while, but there's plenty of options with the tube, bus and train. So if you're in South London, why not go to London Wetland Centre? It is an amazing place. I've only been there once. I'd love to go again. It's just kind of making the time. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope it's enthralled you about frogs and maybe you'll go and explore your local pond, see if you can photograph some frogs yourself. Until the next podcast, I'll catch you next time. Cheers. <laughs>